0: I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed.
1: Alexandra Waldman has been a fashion and arts editor in Tokyo, a writer in Paris, and a financial marketer in Moscow but it was in 2015 in New York that her life changed and took on a whole new path filled with personal meaning. Along with her now partner, Paulina Vexler, she founded Universal Standard, a line of beautiful quality clothing ranging from size 00 to 40. Their small first collection sold out in just six days, and since then they've been named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies, listed in the Business of Fashion's index of people shaping the industry, and raised investment from some big names like Gwyneth Paltrow and Net-a-Porter founder Natalie Massinet. I caught up with Alexandra at home in New York to hear about wrestling with trying to find a practical career, lessons learned living around the world, trying to figure out how to design a pair of jeans on her apartment floor, and why their brand is all about equality, not inclusivity. Alexandra Waldman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk.
0: It is an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> it should be very interesting. So. I like
1: to kind of start sometimes around university because for so many of us, that's the time where we're first asked or pressured into maybe figuring out what the hell we want to do with our lives and what is the major and what is the direction. And I don't know how that is in Canada because I know that's where you studied at the university in Ottawa, studied English lit. So tell me a little bit about that time in your life. I mean, did you have any idea what you want to be when you grow up, so to speak?
0: I had absolutely no idea. I knew I had a lot of interests in various things that were often completely different from one another. But I sort of bided my time and I do regret it. I wish I wish I had spent more time expanding my mind when I was in university, rather than just going through the experience like most young people. That's one of my things, you know, in the future, I'd love to go back to school and just study for the joy of it.
1: Yeah, youth is wasted on the young, so they say, so, you know, it's true. It really truly really is, it really and truly really is, yeah. What do you think you'd do differently if you were to go back a second time around?
0: I think I would pay more attention And I think that I would probably lean into the things that I'm passionate about that have no practical value, which is something that my immigrant parents told me uh, was like the number one priority. You know, like I wasn't to take art, I was to take typing because it was much more useful and much more practical. So I sort of looked at things a lot through that lens. And now, of course, as an adult, looking back, it's somewhat whimsical, I realize, but the idea of studying for the pleasure of it is uh, is very appealing.
1: I don't think so. I I don't think it's whimsical at all. I think so many of us really do look through that lens of, well, what can you actually do with this and what's practical? And especially if you have that kind of upbringing where it's all about what can you actually do with this? How can you make a living? But I think more and more undergrad, especially degrees, should be so much about doing things that you love because that's such a unique time in life to just figure out what your lane is.
0: Yeah, this is where you discover your passion. And it can be in a very weird place indeed. I mean, you just don't know what is going to really make you excited about your work for the rest of your life or a big portion of your life. I mean, God knows I've worn a lot of different hats. And I've been very fortunate in being able to experience a lot of different things. Uh, But they've all brought me here somehow. And I'm very grateful for that.
1: So let's talk about some of those different things, because you've definitely had an interesting path in a lot of different places around the world. One of them near, I guess, the sort of beginning of your path was being a fashion and arts editor in Tokyo. Tell me how that happens.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm not 100% sure how that happened either. To the best of your recollection. Uh, So I moved to Japan after university because I was at a little bit of a loss. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was ready for an adventure. I was quite fearless in terms of taking, you know, big leaps. And um, I went to Japan like most uh, North American young people go to Japan. I went as an English teacher. And I sort of looked around and did my thing and realized what I was good at and realized what I was terrible at which was teaching, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was really great for the first couple of lessons. And then I would just like, it would just be such a But I did see value in reporting back to North America about what Japan was like. And so I started to write for various publications. And eventually I had enough articles in my quote unquote portfolio to take to a respected newspaper and say I would really like to work here as an editor which is you so just sort of pitched yourself
1: as a freelancer at that time to write about Tokyo.
0: Yeah, I mean it was it was it was very strange how it all happened. I started off just as a as a copy editor and eventually worked my way up to being a, a proper editor in the arts and entertainment section and eventually taking over the fashion section. So it just kind of happened that way. But there is a very interesting sort of anecdote. When I was very new still to Japan, through the grapevine, I I heard that there was a position available to work for the fashion editor of the Japan Times. And that seemed like such a grand thing. And I remember calling this person and speaking with him and feeling so nervous. And, um, you know, he listened to me and quite correctly hired someone else. But years went by because I did spend quite a long time in Japan. And I eventually became the fashion editor at that same newspaper. Oh wow. And that editor who had gone back to the States and then returned to Japan called me for a job. Full circle. And it was such a of course he didn't remember me, but I remembered him because it was, you know, such a meaningful interview for for me. And for him it was just like one of the the minion, um, who had called, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a full circle moment. It was really memorable.
1: So how long were you doing that? And what do you think, especially since it's like your first hardcore job and so far from home, such a different culture, what do you think you sort of learned about yourself or who you wanted to be, what you wanted to do through that work?
0: Um, let me see. There was actually quite a bit of learning, especially stuff that I apply now, strangely enough. I learned that being a contributing editor uh, and writing for various magazines felt too much like having homework. So I was like, oh, deadline, Mm, you know, not crazy about those. I'd rather be in a position to accept and judge other people's work. I learned that no job is as glamorous as it looks or sounds from the outside, that all of it is hard work. It doesn't matter whether you're a fashion editor for a national newspaper. Or, you know, whatever it is that you do, it's just work. I learned that access to the people who you thought were completely inaccessible is much easier uh, and much closer than you may have ever imagined. It's a kind of demystification, I think, is what I learned because. You know, I sat with Karl Lagerfeld for interviews and I sat with the heads of big houses and I sat in front rows of huge fashion shows and all I could think about was like, this is work. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think that a lot of it was just demystified, which actually made things a little bit easier. You know, it kind of took the, oh my God, oh my God, that's unattainable out of it. And so you really see how the sausage is made and you kind of go, right, okay, I can do this.
1: That's so important to take that stuff off the pedestal a little, especially I like what you're saying about reaching out to people and that people that seem kind of unattainable and that, oh God, I could never try or reach out or I could never get to that person, that it's actually not that hard and it shouldn't stop you from trying.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So you transitioned at some point from this glamorous, non-glamorous life in fashion in Tokyo to the finance world. Tell me about what sparked that switch and what that was like.
0: It's a very convoluted path. And you have to be open to these things. That's when really interesting stuff happens. Um, That's one of the things that I learned. I was kind of a jack of all trades. So before I started at the newspaper full time, I was writing articles for publications back home, and I was also working as a very mediocre photographer for <laughs> for uh, various, you know, various jobs. And um, I was introduced to this woman who eventually became one of my closest friends. She had a column in another newspaper that basically went around all the various embassies and interviewed the ambassadors and the wives of ambassadors about how they entertained. I was her official photographer. And on one of these assignments, she wound up meeting her future husband. And being the wife of an ambassador, she she worked at this bank. And she oversaw the research, the uh, investment research that was being produced there. And uh, while I was still not full-time employed, every time she went away, she would ask me to come in and sort of substitute for her. So people got to know me, and I got to know how things work. And eventually, when her husband's tenure ended, they had to move, and she put me forward as her replacement. And, you know, I was completely seduced by the money, which – You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like anything huge, but it was better than being a journalist, frankly.
1: Finance versus journalism. There's one clear winner financially.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I did have a moment of pause where I thought, gosh, am I going to the dark side here? But yeah, somehow I got over those scruples and I, I, and I went to the dark side and I got to know a completely different world with a completely different kind of intelligence and a different set of rules and, For me as a human being, it was interesting to get to know that world. So that's how I transitioned from being a photographer to someone who had a column to taking over her job um, when she left.
1: And you were doing this for a while in Tokyo. Were you aware, this is not for me, but this is really interesting. There are some good skills to pick up here.
0: At this stage, I was still pretty kind of young in my professional life. And I was much more interested in understanding what it was like to get a healthy paycheck and the changes that it would make to my life. Um, I was less concerned about what the job itself was because I I really had so much to learn that I knew I wouldn't be bored. And then if the time ever came when I would be bored, at least I'd have the financial freedom to maybe look around for something uh, that was more suitable. But it was really experimenting with the creative versus the practical, um, which is, you know, that story thread line that starts with your parents kind of thing.
1: Take us then to Moscow, because you have all these different work experiences. And again, Tokyo to Moscow, very different culture, forget the different language, but different context. And you end up taking this senior marketing role there. And I think you were there for for what, like six years or something. Tell me a little more about that.
0: So in between there, there was Paris. I moved to Paris for a year on a romantic notion that I was gonna somehow find a life there and write a book. And I did write a book, I didn't, didn't have it published, but um, I got it kind of out of my system. You have to be careful when you meet your idols. In my case, Paris was an idol. And when I finally, you know, got stuck in, not as a tourist, but as a resident, you know, reality kind of straightened you out pretty quickly. So after that, I sort of swerved and I won't bore you with in-between details, but yes, I wound up in Moscow
1: that's interesting what you say about the idols. It just makes me think of my own experience a little bit because I lived there for six months when I was in university. And I was always, I guess a little bit like you, what you described in the beginning is having a lot of different interests and passions and not knowing where each one fit or which I should pursue. And I remember having this fantastical notion that wandering the streets of Paris at 1920, I was going to have an epiphany about, <laughs> about my life direction. <laughs> Needless to say, I enjoyed it, but there was no epiphany.
0: And you know what? You need those. You need those those hopes. You need that fantasy, that romantic. I think that's a very healthy thing. And even if it knocks you back a bit when you're neck deep, you know, it's a huge lesson to learn. It was important to learn that and it was interesting to learn that and I'm so glad I did that. But yes, yeah, somehow I I wound up in Moscow doing ironically exactly the same job as I did in Tokyo in finance. And eventually, wound up sort of overseeing the marketing arm for the whole group, actually, which was very interesting. And I had some real adventures.
1: Yeah, I was going to say another adventure. Was it the adventure you
0: expected? It was so much more than what I expected. I, I, I went there with just the expectations of having like an interesting few years. And it turned out to be a really important seven years of my life where I really, I learned so much and I met some phenomenal people and I spent time in a really interesting country, not just from a historical perspective, but from a, how can I put this? It was not just an interesting geographical location for all its history and all its events and opulence, but it was interesting in terms of what was happening in Russia at that time. And, you know, it was the wild, wild East. And I got to see and do some incredible things. Like sometimes when I recount them, I can't believe that I actually got to do those things.
1: Is there one moment that you think was kind of most formative or you just can't forget?
0: There were so many. I mean, I invited Bill Clinton to Moscow and he came. It was really spectacular. I put on conferences across the world. I spent a lot of time on the African continent, which I never thought I would have the chance to do. And I really got to see the world through a completely new filter, a new lens.
1: Do you think that's changed your view of the world or how you operate or what you decided to do yourself afterwards, having seen so many different contexts?
0: I think what it does is it chips away at your fears, you know, and it's sort of, you come into the world and it's like, it's like trying to figure out the dimensions of a room in the darkness, but with a laser pointer, you know, it's like, you're like, what's, where's this wall and what's that? And then slowly everything gets illuminated, you know, like little by little, you know, you have way more contacts and it goes from one dimensional to two dimensional to three dimensional. And suddenly you understand things much better and you can apply the things that you've learned to those new experiences. And it all sort of, it's like puzzle pieces that are moving towards each other So it was an incredible, incredible experience, because I guess I was at the, well, obviously at the highest point at that stage of my life, because it's a straight line of experience and confidence. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, bosses who believed in me and allowed me to do crazy things. I mean, (laughs) you know, manage budgets that were completely very heady, heady amounts.
1: Did you ever find yourself in those situations thinking, Oh, God,
0: I don't know if I can do this. Constantly, constantly. I lived in that. I think if you get to a point where you're like, I can do this with my eyes closed, it's time to look for something else. (laughs) You know, I think that fear and that sort of the anxiety of, you know, can I do this? What am I doing? How did I get here? Oh my God, what happens if I screw up? Uh, For me anyway, as an individual, I think that they're all sort of engines that drive you towards a certain level of success.
1: I'm sure that comes in very useful when you're building a amazing brand from nothing. So let me use that segue. There was some interlude that you spent some time in New York uh, still in the finance world, but around 2015, I guess it's in New York also that you and your now partner, Polina come up with this idea. So did this come out of a frustration? I mean, how how does this begin?
0: Well, my whole entire life, especially when I was writing about fashion. as an adult, I've always lived in a big body. and there's this this thing that you can only know if you live in a big body. otherwise it's it's an academic kind of knowledge, but the the sort of the reality of living in a in a big body is it's very different. Um I was, for example, when I lived in Tokyo, um, one of my closest friends was a model. And she was, exquisitely beautiful. And walking down the street with her side by side, I realized that the world that she lives in is very different from the world that I live in. Even though we were walking down the same street, shoulder to shoulder, the stuff that was coming at her from the outside, you know, the smiles, the looks, the attention... It's completely different than my experience walking down that same street next to her. And I think that those kinds of things can probably be translated into a lot of different categories. For me, being in a bigger body and trying to uh, look like my peers in the fashion industry was hellacious. It was humiliating. I was denied dignity. And it was prefaced on the idea of keeping almost everyone out making it very exclusive and i think that the world is changing tremendously and i think that the inmates are taking over the asylum <laughs> and i think i think that a lot of people I, I think that the the younger generations are just like they have different values and different perspectives and they're like we're bored with this vanilla white skinny girl beauty standard that is less and less relevant every year
1: I mean, this is something that, as you say, you carried with you always, especially being exposed to the fashion world. And I can only can imagine, you know, you're talking about Karl Lagerfeld and fashion shows, the exclusivity and keeping people out is what it has thrived on for so many decades. How do you come up with the idea to actually do something of your own? Had it ever crossed your mind to, to start something like this, to start a fashion brand?
0: Forever. But in the way that, you know, a young girl's dream about starting a fashion brand. I mean, it was just completely unrealistic. Was that in the category
1: of the impractical? Don't look that way.
0: Impractical on every conceivable level. I mean, I remember as an adult sharing with a friend of mine in Paris that this had always been my dream, and he laughed in my face and said, "Well, oh, you know, uh, I love cars, and I've always dreamed of starting, you know, designing my own car." Like he he literally laughed at me for for the idea of starting my own brand. Great encouragement. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, and look, I didn't, I couldn't even fault him for that because it seemed ridiculous to me. Yeah. But when, at the end of a lot of very different experiences from across the whole planet, I met with Paulina, who had also coincidentally moved to New York, I think a month after me. We became friends first. And then uh, there was this kind of pivotal event where The light sort of went on for both of us because I'd always been thinking about this. And Paulina is quite a small girl, so she didn't even know there was a problem, as most people didn't. Or at least most people who mattered, let's say the decision makers, didn't see it as a problem that 70% of American women uh, had nowhere really to shop. So when I expressed this to Paulina through this very particular tipping point event, she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, let me show you where I have to go in order to present myself to the world. And I took her to Bloomingdale's, bless their little hearts, because it was one of the few places that I actually could shop. But I had to go to the furniture floor in the Northwest corner and, you know, past all the pots and pans and throw cushions and whatever. And I said, this, this little area right here is where I get to decide how to show myself to the world. Unbelievable. And I think she was really shocked. She was like, what the hell? And then I gave her a little bit of color in terms of what it was like. And she's absolutely brilliant. You know, she was a very experienced financial professional. And she started to look at the space and she just could not believe that a space this huge existed in this oversaturated apparel industry and fashion industry right where everybody else the other say 30% have everything way too much options way too much way too much and then 70% of women who, by the way, don't just buy for themselves when they enter your store. They buy for their husbands and their children and their And you want a
1: choice. You don't want like one option. Here's the so-called plus size option. You want nice things just like everybody else. You want to be able to choose your style.
0: Exactly. Who wants to be thought of as like a specialty customer? Yeah. Like I just wanna I wanna be able to walk into any store in Soho and buy more than a a scented candle, you know, which is an example I often use. But, like, that's all that's available to me. I have an incredible collection of bags. You should see my bags, (laughs) you know, because that was the only way I could express my love of design.
1: So many people think about something along the way. Oh, why doesn't this exist? Or, oh, this would be such a good idea. But very, very few people actually say, okay, let's do this for real. So how did you and Paulina go from this is insane. I can't believe there's this hole in the market to actually saying, we're going to do this. And especially for you to sort of overcome that long held notion that this is a crazy dream that you can't actually do for real.
0: This is where I have to give credit to Paulina. I mean, this is a person, she really is an extraordinary, and I know people throw those words around a lot, but she is really an extraordinary human being. I've known her for many years now, and I'm still not a hundred percent sure that there aren't two of her (laughs) Um, you know, that they kind of like switch off because she is the closest thing to omnipotent I've ever seen. She's fearless and she's fearless for good reason. She's fearless because she knows that she can completely rely on her own abilities and to inspire the maximum out of everyone who sort of finds themselves around her orbit. So when she saw this, she was like, what? Let's do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's not that simple and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, nobody said it was simple, but, you know, we can do this. And from day one, she was like, no, we're going to manufacture internationally. And I was like, what are you talking about? Let's just find a little guy somewhere in the garment district on 36th Street who's going to like make us this. And she was like, look, we either go big or go home. This is not going to be a hobby. It's either going to be a business or it's going to be nothing. And so she, she really sort of positioned the company from the very beginnings of it as something that had a runway to success because of her boldness.
1: That's so great that you had a partner like that. And I think it's an important tip for people if you're thinking you have to do it alone or something that partnerships can, obviously there's a lot of volatility there. There's a lot of potential for problems in partnerships also, but it can also, if you find someone who complements your skill set can make all the difference. Sounds like it did for you
0: it's a marriage, you know, and we often say that it's a marriage and it's as serious a commitment as a marriage is. We knew that we were going into this with that attitude. I'll tell you when it came to finally talking to investors, they were not very thrilled about having two people really at the head of the company. Yeah.
1: Because Cause down the line, you guys raised like $7 million in Series A with some yeah. big names. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, founder of net porter and on and on.
0: Yeah. Look, you know, a, a ship can't have two captains. And quite honestly, especially with very experienced investors, they had seen it too many times. You know, partnerships that start off and then go very, very wrong. And then it affects the company and, and it's just a mess. So it's both a blessing and, you know the opposite of a blessing when it comes to the reality of working together and the reality of, you know, presenting yourself to other people because they do see a potential for problems.
1: So how do you overcome that doubt coming from other people? And I mean, what do you think makes the partnership actually work for you guys?
0: I think everybody starts off thinking that relationship is just going to work because you're both such great people and you're great (laughs) friends and you have a great idea, you know, everybody sort of starts off at that. But then you wade into the waters, and they can be very choppy, very, very choppy. I think that the thing that makes us work is who we are as people. Paulina and I just, we could not be more opposite as human beings. We are nothing alike in any way, except for our values. We have the same values Everything else is different. You know, we often joke that she's the human uh, equivalent of an Excel spreadsheet and I'm the human equivalent of Photoshop. Those two
1: go very well together. So I guess you don't really
0: step on each other's toes in that way. We don't, but we always, this is one of the things that we, we have benefited from being such polar opposites in the sense that when it comes to making a decision, we can sit down and talk about it from completely different perspectives. And we nearly always end up with the right compromise because we have the the ability to examine things from such different sides.
1: Yeah, that sounds really key to be able, especially when building something from the ground up, to be able to see it from someone else's eyes from a totally different
0: vantage point. It also takes a lot of trust, Yeah, a lot of trust, because... It's so easy for egos to get in the way, uh, especially when you start having any modicum of success. I mean, everyone thinks that I'm better than that. But it's really the reality of it is very gritty. You know, people tell you it's really hard work. And we were like, oh, we we know hard work. We can, you know, it is hard, bloody work. Do not kid yourself. It is really, really hard work. And I would say that everything is going to sound like stuff you've heard before but the reason you've heard it before it's because it's so true. You have to have a commitment to one another and to the thing that you are building that is going to be stronger than a lot of very very real difficulties that are going to come your way. Yeah. And every single time you survive one of those, you have to understand that there's going to be another one and another one and another one, and that you have to have enough, whatever it is to get you through a lot of them. Endurance. Yeah.
1: So in terms of that hard work, one of the things that fascinates me with starting something like this is literally like, where do you begin? So there's design, there's manufacturing, the whole production thing. So many nuts and bolts to actually, it's not like, oh, we decided to come up with this all-inclusive, incredible fashion brand. And then we had the samples and we sold them. And I know you guys sold out within like six days. Where do you begin to build from the ground up in that dark tunnel?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. So this is where ignorance plays a very important role. (laughs) You're just dumb enough to take this one step at a time Uh, let's say not dumb. Let's say idealistic enough. You know, I would say it's like stepping into the pitch. You are stepping into total darkness. You have no idea if something is going to meet your footfall. You are in pure darkness. The only thing you can see is what you've already passed behind you. And as you move through this pitch, you begin to see a pattern. And as you get used to this pattern, you begin to understand how to deal with it. And so it rolls on and on and on. So we literally started on the floor of my one bedroom apartment. We were very strict about like every single day, we started 10 o'clock, Pauline would come from her home, we would sit down and it was a full working day. So we had it very structured, we tried to be as strategic as we could be. So we would set goals. And then try to reach them. But we were on the floor of my one bedroom apartment trying to figure out how to make a pair of jeans, having never, ever, ever done that before. And you know what, through the the lack that I have felt my entire adult life, we were able to figure out and much, much hilarity when it comes to actually manufacturing, you know, across the world. I mean, I could tell you stories that you would just sit there shaking your head, but we just figured it out. Somehow we figured it out a millimeter at a time. And then once you've been through it a couple of times, you know, you just make it the process better and better and better.
1: Were you traveling back and forth to manufacturers to try to see or? <laughs>
0: we, we, we did at first. So just to give you an idea of how at zero we were when we started this company. I mean, you, we could not be more at zero. Neither of us at any experience with manufacturing clothing or anything like it. We would go to big department stores and we would look at the brands that we admire. We would walk up to XYZ brand and we would look at the made in label to see where they make their stuff. And we found out that the cottons that we most admired seemed to come from Peru. So we called the Peru Chamber of Commerce. And Paulina said, hi, we're a young company. We're trying to do the tea, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, do you think you could record? And they were like, well, good luck to you. And see in a few years when you have something, you know, like a value to tell us. So we waited a couple of weeks and Paulina called back and she said, hi, we're an American manufacturer of clothing. And um, it's getting a little too expensive to manufacture in the United States. And we're thinking of switching our cotton production to Peru. And they flew us to Peru. They introduced us to a whole bunch of factories that we still work with to this day. But it was hilarious because when we got there, the jig was up. I mean, (laughs) it was ridiculous. We did not know anything. We're meeting with these heads of factories who think that were these American manufacturers, you know?
1: That's a terminology you've never heard before. And so.
0: Exactly. They're saying things like, you know, what are your grading rules? And Paulina is desperately looking up the word grading on her Google. <laughs> and so we finally had to just come clean. And we're sitting across these, you know, very kind of uh, distinguished men who have been doing this for their entire careers. And we're like, what is this grading thing you keep talking about? And they just kind of looked at us, but there we were, you know, we were across from them and they took a risk on us and, and it worked and we're still working together.
1: That's such a great lesson in taking a chance to get yourself in the door and not underselling yourself. Chutzpah, chutzpah completely. Yeah. But it's also a sort of like, even if it's manufactured self-confidence, it's a self-confidence to say, not we are trying to be designers or we are trying to be manufacturers, but say we already are to sort of establish yourself as what you're trying to be.
0: Spot on, spot on. Here's the lesson. When you fake it, people can't tell the difference. And that's something you can lean back on. So as long as you remind yourself that they can't see the difference, you're good to go. So
1: overall, if
0: you're looking at it,
1: what kind of, aside from that, which is a huge lesson, is there something now, if you look back so far at your journey, that you think helped you guys succeed most along the way?
0: I think our lack of knowledge was at least as important as our fearlessness or our feigned fearlessness, because it allowed us to bypass all of the things that we actually hated about uh, the way the manufacturing and the apparel industry in general worked. So we kind of did stuff that, you know, everyone was saying, why don't you just go like buy a bunch of Lane Bryant stuff and just like I mean these guys have been doing this for years if they don't know how to do it nobody knows how to do it and I just kept thinking you know I'm doing this because I want to be the opposite of Lane Bryant why would I want to go into this and god bless Lane Bryant again because if it weren't for them we'd probably be walking around naked you know but there had to be a change in the entire industry and we knew that we'd have to really break things before we could make things. And we were just a set on breaking things and explaining why it was important to break them as we were on building things that were completely new and fresh.
1: In terms of explaining it, we started out at the beginning of your journey, talking about the fashion industry and, and how closed it can be. And sure, in one way, it's all about creativity and change and you know staying relevant. But it's also this very closed, inclusive, even old school kind of place. So how are you guys received and how did you make your pitch? Was that hard or did people get it because there is, as you said, such a massive hole in the market?
0: People got it, but they got it in the wrong way there was a general consensus that a change was needed, but the change that they thought was needed was so based on everything they'd known before that it was basically an anti-change. <laughs> so people just could not get past the idea of straight size clothing and plus size clothing. So as long as you manufactured anything above a 14, you were considered a plus size brand. And that is the lens that everyone looked at us through. So when when we said we're not a plus size brand. The reason we do double zero to 40 is because we don't care what size you are. We don't care. We want to be able to offer clothes to women and then your own personal journey and your body positivity and everything else, that's your personal journey. As an apparel brand, we're here to make nice clothes that hopefully you want to buy. And that was really sort of like, because the whole sort of, you know finger wagging this should be different and body positivity and love yourself and all of that was so ingrained in the idea of selling clothing to bigger women that everyone just kind of very it's very um oh, what's the
1: word i'm looking for insidious
0: patronizing
1: in a way isn't it
0: it's very patronizing it's very look every revolution has stages and this was a necessary stage somebody had to be emotional to say we need a change. But then, you know, there has to come a time when we are not trying to extract an emotional payment for a frock. When we're just saying, you want to buy something, we have things, I don't care what size you are. I I honestly, I don't care. You can be a double zero, you can be a size 40. You can be whatever in between, just like, Hugo, we make everything in every single size, you decide. It's incredible.
1: Totally changing the mentality around. And it. people
0: really couldn't, they couldn't really grasp that. Do
1: you, do you think you finally made your case in helping people grasp that? I mean, where you are today is incredible.
0: The problem is that people think they get it. That's the biggest obstacle to overcome. They think they understand when they don't. This idea of like they still see it as a binary sort of clothes for big girls and clothes for not big girls. That's a very big hurdle to overcome. It's starting, and I think that the more sort of woke brands are beginning to to change. But you still have a lot of performative uh, behavior where it's like brands see this and it's they think of it as a trend and they want to be on the right side of it, so they'll offer like three things that have nothing to do with their main line, and it can only be found online, not in their stores. And then they call themselves size inclusive, and it's just kind of ugly.
1: You know what that reminds me of? And this might not feel related for you, but it just, it brings to mind, I have had a subscription to Vogue for forever. And one of my kind of guilty pleasures, whatever it is. And they had this issue, which I feel like they do. And every magazine does every once in a while. The size issue? Yeah, the size issue. And, you know, beautiful photography, beautiful women of all sizes and whatever. But the whole thing is about like, this is the size issue. And it's kind of like felt like this very pat in the back. And it's, it's segregation. Why it's do segregation, you just, yeah. just include all those sizes in regular vogues? Then, I mean, isn't
0: that the point? Exactly. This is why we don't call ourselves an inclusive brand. Because to me, the word inclusive implies a kind of favor that you're like opening the gates to include people. To us, it's about size equality. Just like it's equality. Make it for everyone. Stop trying to let people in to your exquisite world that you still have the key to, and only you have the key to it. So it is starting to change, it really is. But um, there's still a lot, a lot of learning and a lot of, of kind of breaking things up to be done.
1: I like how you put it that way, though. I, I honestly never thought of it that way, when you think about the original exclusivity of the fashion industry and beauty and all that stuff around there. And then that inclusivity is kind of claims to be the opposite, but it's actually still so tied to the notion of you were left out before and now we're going to do you a favor and let you in.
0: We'll let you trickle in. Yeah. Little by little. I
1: I won't keep you too much longer, but I want to hear a little bit about your sort of actual work because Paulina is a CEO. You are the chief creative officer. What is your work like in that
0: role? So my job has been up till now to design all the clothes. So that's my first and foremost thing. We now have an absolutely brilliant head of design, thank God, who, um, you know, didn't learn his trade on the floor of his one-bedroom apartment. This is someone who is absolutely phenomenal. So we work together where I set out the sort of general direction of the kind of things that we need to lean into. And then we work out what those specific things are actually going to be. My job is to tell the brand story. If Paulina is the brain, I'm the heart. So the stuff that most people get to see comes from my side of the divide. And all of the things that actually make us work as a company come from Paulina's. Oh, they have to go together, as you said. They have to go together. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So... Before I let you go, my my kind of last question to you, thinking back now on all your journey from Canada to Tokyo, to Paris, to Moscow, to New York, through a few different fields and sort of ending up in a place that seems not only so profoundly right for you, but something that you had thought about for a while, but just never believed could be a real thing. This kind of classic question, if you were to sit down for coffee with your, I don't know, 20-year-old self, 25-year-old self, what might you tell her?
0: Always choose the harder way. Always choose the way that seems scary, that is going to make you go, oh my God, am I really going to do this? Because quite often you will be at a crossroads and it'll be between something that you feel quite comfortable with and between something that makes you feel very uncomfortable. And in my experience, always choose the uncomfortable one because that's what makes you grow and explore and Find out things about yourself that you would never otherwise have known. You know, don't be afraid to take that risk because it will always lead you to a better place.
1: I love that. I love that. I find that deeply encouraging and, a really important reminder that's that's the worthy and interesting path and you've definitely proven that very clearly (laughs) alexander waldman i really really admire what you guys have built i think it's incredible and sharing the philosophy behind it that there's still a way to go for everybody to get it and you guys are really blazing the path for that so thank you so much for taking the time to talk
0: thank you so much this was a total pleasure
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Write me any questions that you want answered or women you'd want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And coming up next week, a candid talk with executive producer of PBS NewsHour, Sarah Just. After 25 years at ABC News, she was brought in to revitalize the storied nightly broadcast, and she opens up about all of it. I just said, are you know,
0: you're comfortable doing having those conversations in front of men. She's, oh, sure, makes them uncomfortable. That's a good thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Throws them off their game. Throws them I love off, that. right?
0: She's like, we're women. Why should we be uncomfortable being women in a room, even though they're all men?
1: I'm Noreen Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.